You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. Well, tonight we finish up 1 Corinthians. We've been in 1 Corinthians since September. This is, I counted today, this is the 21st week that we have studied 1 Corinthians together, which is which is crazy, honestly, when you think about it. Um, but to be quite honest, we could have spent probably 40 weeks studying this book. Um, one of the cool things I was, I was kind of just reflecting on this week um, is this is the sixth book in the past three years, the sixth book of the Bible that we've studied completely through. And, and I think that's great. I think it says a lot about, about you um, and and really where you're at and learning to study the Bible and understanding Scripture, you know, one of the things that we really try to do is go verse by verse through books of the Bible and learn to really study God's Word. And, uh, and so, in a sense, I kind of want to applaud you for sticking it out and studying six books of the Bible over the past three years. I know we got some freshmen, sophomores here that haven't been here all three years. Um, but we're going to continue doing this a lot. I mean, we, we really have a high regard for God's Word. And so tonight, we're closing out... Um, our, uh, our future, our funeral series, bigger picture, we're closing out our study of 1 Corinthians. And I kind of, you know, and, and when you close out a letter, you kind of have to bring it all back together. And, and I want to recap, like, where Paul was when he was writing this. He was in Ephesus. He wasn't in Corinth when he was writing this. Obviously, he wouldn't have written a letter if he was to Corinth if he was in Corinth. <clears throat> but he was in Ephesus, and you can actually go to Acts 19, and you can see... Um, really what he was going through when he wrote this. He spent about two years, three years in Ephesus really investing in that church, um, which is modern-day Turkey. Corinth is more modern-day Greece area. And so he's a lot across the pond, a little, not the pond, big pond, but a little pond from him. And he's writing this letter to them. And, and after he writes this letter to them, he goes from Ephesus, as you, if you track his journey in Exodus 19 and 20, he goes to Macedonia, um, and then he goes down to Greece, and then he circles back around um, to Jerusalem. It's kind of his farewell tour. You get to uh, uh, Acts 20, and he says some really, um, honestly, some bold things in there and some, some true statements about his life that's reflected in his ministry that shows how, how much he was devoted to following Christ. And as he goes past Ephesus on the way backwards to Jerusalem, instead of stopping in Ephesus, he tells the leaders to come down and meet him on the coast because he loved the church so much, didn't want to go visit the church because he knew he'd end up staying there longer than he, he was called to stay there by God. So he calls the leaders to meet with him, and they have this super emotional meeting because they know that when he goes to Jerusalem, um, that was probably going to be the end of his life. And essentially, it began to be the end of his life because he was not welcome in Jerusalem, he was arrested, and eventually he was taken to Rome. But I want you to see the bigger picture here of what Paul's vision was and what his devotion was. If you were to look at Romans 15, really Romans 15, 20 through 24, sums up Paul's mission. Um, he says this, he says, I make it my ambition, which just think about this. Think of all the ambitions that we have, and think of what those amount to in the long run, knowing that there's a future after the funeral Think of the ambitions, the goals, the desires that you have and how much they amount to in the long run knowing there's a future after the funeral and listen to what his ambition was. He says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named lest I build on somebody else's foundation. But as it is written, and he quotes from Isaiah 52, those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason, as he's writing to the Romans here, this is the reason, he says, why I've, why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. In other words, he's saying, look, the regions I'm at now haven't all yet heard the gospel. And I want everybody here to hear the gospel. So before he's able to go to Rome, he has to make sure that he's, 
if not preached to everybody about the gospel, at least established leaders in a network and a church system that can take care of making sure everybody hears the gospel. And so he says, verse 23, this is the reason why I've so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, <clears throat> but now since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you in Rome, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Now that's significant because at this point in history, you know, Columbus hadn't crossed the ocean yet. So Spain was the end of the earth. And what this reveals is that Paul's one vision, he was a one-track-minded dude. His one vision, his one devotion was to make sure that every single person on planet earth had the gospel, heard the gospel, beginning in Jerusalem and moving to the ends of the earth. Paul had one vision. He had one devotion. And as we think about that, closing out this letter, because this letter was part of him accomplishing that vision, it begs a question from us. What is your vision? What is it that you are going to devote your life to? You know, so many people arrive at death in old age only to realize as they reflect back on their life that they accomplished nothing of worth. You know, so easy to get caught up in the cycle of doing things that you're quote-unquote supposed to do without ever asking the question, really, what am I supposed to do with my life? I mean, in high school, it kind of begins, you know, like you, you're challenged, okay, you got to do good in your school because you got to make good grades, and then you got to do good on your SAT, ACT, so you can get into the college that you want to go to. And then let's say you get in the college you want to go to, or you got in your second choice, or third, or 18th choice, whatever it was, you get to the college you want to go to, and then you're told you got to go to class, you got to make good grades. And then, you know, you got to keep your GPA up, but you also need to get involved in extracurricular activities so that you can pad your resume. And so when you graduate, then you can get into the master's program that you want, or the internship you want, or you can get the job that you want. And so you go one of those three routes, and then... Somewhere in the midst of that, you're told you're supposed to date somebody and then eventually marry somebody, and then you'll start a family, buy a house, order maybe switched, I don't know. And then if you have the money, you're told to invest that money and start saving up for retirement. You're told all these things that you're supposed to do. That's what's preached to you your whole life. That's what culture preaches, and that's even what a lot of our churches preach to us. And if you swerve away from doing what you're quote-unquote supposed to do, what culture says we're supposed to do, people look at you and say you're either weird, you're wrong, or they might even call you rebellious. But what does God desire of your life as a Christian? <coughs> what does he desire of your life as a Christian? When we first started 1 Corinthians, we started off with a, with a series called Contrast. And we called it Contrast because there's supposed to be a contrast between us as Christians and the rest of the world. We're supposed to look different, but are we? I mean, do we look different? Jesus was different. Many people came before Jesus and, and have come after Jesus claiming to be prophets and claiming to have the secret to life. Jesus came and he claimed to be God. Jesus claim, came and he claimed to be the way, the door to life, the door to eternal life. And then he died, but he died only to come back to life again. Many people came before Jesus and have come after Jesus teaching about a God who will accept you if you perform well enough for him. Many people have come teaching about a God who will accept you if you achieve enough things for him or if you accomplish certain things, do certain things. And to be real honest with you, the people who preach about that God, honestly, they preach 
a pretty small God with some pretty low expectations. Jesus came and he preached about a big God that had such high and unattainable expectations that there's no way for us to impress God. There's no way for us to perform well enough for God. There's no way that we can accomplish enough for God to where he'll accept us. So God came, he sent his son Jesus, God in the flesh, to come and pave a way where otherwise there would have been no way to have a relationship with God fixed and restored. Jesus is different. And the way of life that Jesus calls his followers to is not only different, but it's shockingly different. I mean, you look at a few things he says. Luke 9, 23, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He says, Forever would save his life must lose his life. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? You look at Luke 14, 26, 27, and 33. He says, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and his mother, his brothers, his sisters, his, his children, yes, his wife, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And he says, anyone who comes after me, or, or he says, um, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And he goes on, he says, so therefore any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It is one impossible to encounter Jesus, to know Jesus, and to follow Jesus, and to not look drastically different. So are you? Do you? I mean, are your life goals that you have set, are they different than what the rest of the world is setting? Is the direction in your life, is it different I mean, is what you're devoted to, is it different than what the rest of the world, it's impossible to encounter and and know and follow Jesus and not look completely different. I mean, there's so much more to live for than what most of us are living for. There's a future after the funeral. John Stott, a pastor who recently died from, from England, in his book, Radical Disciple, he said, life on earth, and think about this, some of you, it's gonna take you a second, he says, Life on earth is a brief pilgrimage between two moments of nakedness. So, we would be wise to travel light. I mean, what if we really did give up everything that we had and followed Jesus, believing in the future after the funeral? And, and what if we really believed Jesus when he says in Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then here's the big part. You will be, promised statement, if you have the Holy Spirit, he's going to create this desire in you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, starting in your hometown, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What if we really believe that statement? What if we really believe the statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 24, 14, where he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. I mean, essentially saying that you and I have an impact on the timing of Christ's return, because all it takes is to preach the gospel in every inhabited part of the earth, to every nation or people group on the earth, and then he will return. What if we believe that? I mean, we love to talk about missions. We love to read all these books about missions. We love to talk and read about being radical and having real faith. But all of that is only theory until we put it into practice. And it's only when we put it into practice that it becomes real faith. 
I mean, at what point will we stop talking and start walking? I have a huge, 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 huge fear that most of us have this theoretical relationship with God, but few of us have a real relationship with God. And this is not a message to guilt you into following Jesus. I'm saying these things because I desperately myself want to experience God, and I want you to experience God. I'm calling this message tonight theory versus faith. And I, I don't, this is kind of my, what I was thinking of as I was thinking about this. Like, I don't know if you've ever sat in class. I was a business major. <clears throat> and I remember sitting in class, and I got this professor teaching me who, honestly, I'm not sure if he's ever been in the real business world, but he's teaching me all this business theory and stuff. And he's saying all these things. He's telling me, you know, how to run a business and how to start a business, how to be a good manager of a business and how to make money with a business and all these things about marketing your business. And I'm sitting there thinking, like, if this guy is such an expert in all of this stuff, why is he not out running a business and making way more money than he'd make as a professor? I mean, has this guy ever been a successful businessman? Or is this all just theory to him? I always hated those classes where we sit there all the time and just talk theory, 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 and never put it into practice. Now, I know you hate your classes where you have like an hour class and then a three-hour lab. But there's so much greatness to that because you talk about the theory, but then you test the theory and you see if it actually works. And for many of us, our walk with God, it's just theoretical quotes around walk with God. We love having theoretical conversations about following Jesus, but we are yet to test those theories. That's why coffee shops are full of Christians, but the mission field is not. And the reality is you're not living in faith if you're not putting these theories to the test. Jesus says, drop everything you have and follow me. At what point are we going to stop talking about it and are we going to start doing it? Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He's saying, seek first my mission and my holiness, and I promise you I will take care of all of your needs. I mean, at what point are we going to stop talking about it and start doing it? Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Don't store up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where moth and rust don't destroy and thieves don't break in and steal. At what point are we going to stop talking about it and start doing it? We will never experience God until we put these theoretical conversations and ideas to the test. We'll never know them. And our faith will never grow because our faith will never be tested unless we put these theories to the test. It's all theory until we put it into practice. Only when we put it into practice does it become faith. I said earlier, so many people arrive at death and old age only to reflect back and realize that they've accomplished nothing really of worth. Forget about that statement. And think about this one instead. Think of how many Christians arrive at death and as they reflect back on the life they've just lived, whether they're old or they're young and they're laying in their deathbed, reflecting back, think how many reflect back and and. And only to realize that they have not lived a life of real faith, but of theoretical conversations and ideas about Jesus and about faith and about God's word. I mean, they've never experienced God. They didn't really know God, all because they never really put this faith that they talked about all the time to the test. They talked about it a lot, but never walked in it. At what point will we stop talking and start 
walking. It's all just theory until we put it into practice. And when we put it into practice, that's when it becomes real faith. Paul, he took Jesus' words so seriously. So serious, in fact, that he gave up this high standing that he had among the Jews in order to follow Jesus. He gave up his wealth. He abandoned his wealth. And he chose not to use his top-of-the-line education that he had for the monetary and, and social benefits that it could have offered him. And he was abandoned by his wife and his family. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 28 says, I'm talking like a man, this is Paul, he says, I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. He says, and apart from all those things, there's this daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. But then he goes on in chapter 12, verse 8, he says, but God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Paul dropped everything to follow Jesus, and, and God used him to change the world. But even more importantly, in the process, he also experienced God. Because he walked in faith and put these theories to the test, he experienced God. He saw that his promises, God's promises, aren't just theories, they're real. And he saw that when, when God says, my grace is sufficient for you, he saw that's not just theoretical conversation, it's real because he was in situations as he walked in faith where that's the only hope he had was for God's grace to be sufficient for him. And it wasn't just Paul. So many of the believers in the early church, they did the same thing. In this last chapter, the end of 15 and, and all of 16, it's full of people who weren't just sharing and passing around <coughs> these theoretical conversations and ideas about Jesus, but they were actually walking in faith. And so I'm going to read um, beginning chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, verse 58, all the way to the end, all the way to the end of chapter 16. Huge, biggest chunk of scripture I think we've read all year. Well, I want you to follow along and listen to this. It's, it's, it's amazing the things that happen here as he closes out this chapter. He says, verse 58 of chapter 15, Therefore, <clears throat> my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift, your money gift, to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, then they will accompany me. Verse 5, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps... I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want you to see, or for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door. Listen for his reason for staying in Ephesus. He says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pente Pentecost for a wide door 
for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. <coughs> when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Verse 12. Now considering or concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has the opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fordinaeus and Acacius, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. In other words, and the reason he says that is he, he could have had a scribe writing it for him, but he says, no, I care so much about this that I'm writing this greeting, this in part, with my own hand. It's like his signature. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. I love this chapter because you have all these different people that are mentioned. I don't know if you notice how many different people are mentioned. And you have all these different people mentioned, and they're all playing these different parts. I mean, even though their jobs and their, and their parts and their roles are different, even though their locations on planet Earth are different, all of these people took Jesus' words seriously. You have Paul and Timothy and Apollos. These guys were missionaries, pastors, church planters, visionaries for God's church. And the reality is you don't have to be a pastor or a missionary or a church planter or whatever to walk in faith or to work for the Lord. But listen to this. Many of you need to be. You know, in our Christian culture, I think we've swung so hard this one direction where we're, we like to say things like, well, everybody's a missionary, or everybody's in full-time ministry. It doesn't matter if you're a barista or a CEO or a pastor. And those statements are totally true. But what we've missed in, in getting so accustomed to just saying that and saying that and saying it over and over, we forget to say things like, some of you are called to be pastors. Some of you in this room are called to be church planters. Some of you in this room are called to be missionaries. You're called to pack up and leave Denton and go to another city in America or go to another country in the world. I just got an email today from one of my former students who tomorrow morning, 11 a.m., she is leaving to go to northern Africa for two years. And this girl, she's just like so many of you. She went to college. She got her graduate or she got her undergrad degree. She's got this bubbly personality. She was a leader in our ministry. She, she loves Jesus. She's, she could be so successful here. Got her undergraduate degree and then saw that God was calling her to leave and go to northern Africa to a people group who has just now had the gospel of John translated into their language. And she's going to use her undergrad degree of being a dietitian to, to be a platform for sharing the gospel in that part of the world. Some of you in this room are called to be missionaries. Some of you are called to be pastors and church planters. Some of you guys, speaking to the males in this room specifically, 
Some of you guys in this room, God designed you to be a pastor. I mean, it's, it's your choice what you do with your life, but the reality is he wired you, he gifted you, and he even built you physically so that you could effectively serve him as a pastor. And then you have people mentioned in here, you have Stephanus down in verse uh, 15. <coughs> Stephanus and his household, or her, I don't know if that's a dude or a girl. But you got Stephanus and Stephanus's family. And listen to what it says. It says that they were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves, uh, lost my place, devoted themselves to, it says, the service of the saints. That word service is the word diakonos uh, or diakonia right there, which is where we get the word deacon. I don't know if you've ever heard the word deacon before, but, but basically uh, none of these people likely had the calling on their life to be a pastor or missionary or church planter. Instead, they had these different gifts that they used to serve the church. It's like what you see in Acts chapter 6. Where the apostles, they're, they're preaching the word and they're spending their time interceding on behalf of the people before God. They're praying. And the church is growing rapidly. And there's all these, these ministry needs that are popping up within the church. People within the church needed to be ministered to. And they realized they couldn't do it all. So they, they recruited, they enlisted, these, they trained these new leaders called deacons to come in and help serve the church. And so that's what Stephanus and, and his family or her family was like. In order for the gospel to advance... God creates people who are good organizationally and who are good administratively, who have a knack for being hospitable, who are good at building things and who are good at fixing things. They'll never be up on a platform in front of people. They're not good at teaching, though they can read and totally understand God's word. It's just not their gift. He creates people like this to serve the church. These are people who have families, they have full-time jobs, and they're not called to be pastors, but they don't use that as an excuse not to engage in God's mission. And then you see in verse uh, 19, it talks about Achilla and Prissa. It says, the churches of Asia send you greetings. Achilla and Prissa, <coughs> together with the church, in their house. Achilla and Prissa, they opened up their homes so the church had a place to gather. For God's kingdom to spread and grow, his church, his people need places to gather where they can worship, where they can pray together, where they can be encouraged by each other, where they can minister to each other, where they can learn together, study the Bible together. And so he uses people to open their homes and host these gatherings. He uses business owners to have a vision for starting businesses that have buildings that can not only be used for their business, but be used for the church, for God's kingdom, for the advancement of God's kingdom. And then you read through the here, and there's a lot of people he doesn't name, but he's referring to just the church in general. There's all these people who are working toward one goal. They all saw it. They were all pursuing it. Specifically, point your attention to verses 1 through 4 of chapter 16. <clears throat> if you read that, through that, what you see is they were spending their money on God. And the reality is we should all be givers. And some people have a greater responsibility of being givers than others. But you look in here and, and, and the poor people and the rich people alike were spending their money on God. Unfortunately, churches get a, get, a, get a bad rap. A lot of people think the churches just want your money because there are men who claim to be pastors, but they're really just thieves. And so they're rolling around in Beamers and Maseratis and, and wearing these Armanis and living in these big, huge houses. And it's really unfortunate that, that liars like that are hurting the reputation of God's church. But regardless of of what they're doing to the reputation of God's church, we have a God-given mandate to spend our money on God and on his kingdom, the advancement of his kingdom. 
And so if you're in a church where you can't trust them with your money, then you need to go somewhere else and you need to be somewhere and be with someone, be investing in something that you know is advancing God's kingdom and whom you trust. Because we are called to spend our money on God. Uh, John Bisogno, former pastor of First Baptist Houston, he said, grace exceeds the law and love outgives it. And he says this in the context of what Jesus did for us. He gave up everything for us. As Christians who are under grace, we should give generously. We should give courageously. We should give dangerously and we should give willingly. So you have all these people in this last chapter who are working together with one vision. They took, they took Jesus' word seriously. And, and in a chapter like this, I'm sure, I don't know if any of you read ahead, you look at it and you're thinking, okay, so what are we going to study in there? Because it's kind of a hodgepodge of all these different things and it's a lot of greetings and, and say hello to so-and-so and say goodbye to so-and-so, you know. But there's two verses in there I really want us to just chop up for the next couple minutes. Verse 13 and 14. Paul writes, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. In this, he essentially closes this letter by giving five instructions. And I just want to look at these real briefly. He says, first, be watchful. And in saying be watchful, again, in the context of the whole letter, what he's saying is stop being lulled or hypnotized into this spiritual sleep by the cultural cycle. He's saying you need to wake up and you need to ask the question, what does God really desire of my life as one of his followers? Are you going to be one of those people who, as you're laying on your deathbed in old age, looking back, are you going to be one of those people that suddenly realizes that you accomplished nothing of worth in your life? Or are you going to be one of those Christians that's laying on your deathbed, reflecting back on your life, only to realize that your life was not a life of real faith, but a life of talking about theories and theoretical ideas that you love to talk about with other people? Romans 13, 11 says, and do this, Paul writes, and do this, understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Ephesians 5, 14, he says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. The challenge is to wake up. You will never truly experience God if your relationship with him is nothing more than theory. It's only theory until we put it into practice. When we put it into practice, that's when it becomes real faith. So he says, be watchful. Second thing he says is stand firm in your faith. You remember our conversation last week? Last week what we saw is, is the key isn't what happened in the past. The key is what are you standing in now? I mean, the reality is so many of us, we put way too much weight on or hope in an event that took place in the past, a prayer that you prayed or an event that you went to and emotionally went down to the front. And though you may have been truly saved by Christ in that moment, the reality is if you are not still in this moment, standing in the gospel, standing in that same faith, then what happened in the past was not real. The Bible says very clearly that real faith perseveres. The Bible teaches um, that to become a Christian is to believe and repent, or as we saw last week, to receive and then stand. It's about your posture. To believe is to believe what God said about Jesus. To repent is to act on that belief. So are you acting on that belief? Does your posture reflect what you say you believe? Are you standing in the gospel? You know, it makes me think of this one experience I had uh, a few years ago. I was in West Africa, and we were 
um, we were coming up on the Gambia River. And, and the country I was in, it's, it's like right below the Sahara, so it's mostly desert. But when you get close to the Gambia River, it's like basically jungle. It's like this oasis. And so you go from no wildlife to like tons of wildlife. And it's kind of scary. Um, we come up on the Gambia River and, <clears throat> you know, there's things like uh, wild hogs like chasing our truck and there's baboons everywhere. Baboons like, you know, on TV they're cool looking up in person. They're like, I'm, I might get killed by this baboon. I don't know. Um, but we come up on the river and you look in the river and there's crocodiles in there. That's, that's crazy. But we got that in Florida um, or alligators, whatever they were. Um, and, and, then, and then you look further and, you, and we see all these hippos in this river. Hippopotamuses, hippopotami, whatever they're called, plural, I don't know. But you know, hip, hip, hippos, hippos, hip, hip-hop, hip-hop anonymous, uh, hippos, you know, they're the, most, uh, they're, they're the most deadly animal in Africa for humans. They've killed more humans than any other animal, which is weird. But they're very territorial. They're crazy and big and huge. So there's hippos in there. And we come up on this, uh, we're, we're about to cross the river. And we come up on this, like, it's, it's a bridge. I quotes around that. It looks like a bridge out of, like, Indiana Jones. There's these four wire cables that look like they've been there since, like, 1802. And then there's these wood, these, like, wood little slab, slabs of wood across. And it looks like they've been there for, since, like, 1802. And, and, like, every third one is missing. And, and we come up on it, and it's about, I, it felt like it was, like, 1,000 feet above the river. I'm sure it was only, like, 50 or 100. But, you know, we come up, and, and, the, and you're looking at the water. There's hippos below this bridge. And, and there's crocodiles. And, and, and later on, we actually, once we got onto the bridge, um, one of the African guys that was with us, he starts yelling, cut, 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 cut. And we, we look, and he's pointing. I'm like, that is not a cat. That is a lion right there. Um, so there's like lions and stuff. And, and so we come up on this bridge. And before we got on the bridge, I remember stopping, looking at the, this bridge, like this bridge is really shady. And so I asked the guy, we had to go through translations. I asked the guy, I was like, hey, ask him if this bridge is safe. Like he's going to say it's not. But ask him if it's safe, it'll just give me peace of mind. So we asked him, goes through translation, he says, oh, yes, he says it's safe, it's safe. And I was like, all right, cool. So me and this other guy who played football at the school I went to, um, we start to together walk across this bridge. And as soon as we both get on the bridge, the guy who we just have to, asked if the bridge was safe, he starts to like jump around and go, no, 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 ah, ah, like he's yelling. And, uh, and, and I'm like, oh my gosh, is there, like, I'm going to die. There's a snake or something. So I jump and I kind of run around and I said, what is he yelling about? And he goes, bridge is not safe. Bridge is not safe. And I said, he just said the bridge is safe. What is he talking about? And he says, no, 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 only one, not two at a time, only one. And I'm like, that is not a safe bridge if you can't walk two across at a time. Now, we eventually walked across this bridge, but I think this bridge and walking across it is such a perfect picture of what, of what Paul wants us to see when he says stand firm in your faith because you can say that you believe that that bridge is safe, but your belief is not belief, your belief is not faith until you are standing on the bridge. Your belief is not belief until you are walking on the bridge. You can say that you believe in Jesus, but your belief is not belief until you are standing in the gospel, walking in the gospel. So he says, stand firm in your faith. The key is not what happened in the past. It's what are you standing in now? <coughs> and after that, he says, he says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith. And then he says, act like men. Now, that could be translated, be men of courage. In some of your translations, that's exactly what it says. Revelation 21, verse 7 and 8 says, He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But, verse 8, the cowardly, the unbelieving, 
Their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. There is no room for the cowardly in heaven. And this has huge implications on your life. Do you really believe there's a future after the funeral? Are you living cowardly or are you taking risks? Not just being crazy and stupid, taking risks, but are you taking risks that force you to trust in Jesus, that force you to walk in faith? Are you taking risks where there is no safety net? Your safety net is Jesus. Are you taking risks where there is no plan B? Your plan A and your only plan is Jesus. There's no room for the cowardly. This is why it's so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. We have way too much to lose. But he says, act like men or be men of courage. This might be better translated to say, be a man. The reality is, when he gets here, he's not talking to men and women. He's specifically talking to the dudes in the church. That Greek word there, it's a compound word, and the first word comes from the word oner, which in Greek is man or husband or male. This word carries three parts in its meaning, courage, responsibility, and initiative. And some of you guys in here are living with a direct disregard for this charge. And you need to hear what he's saying. It reminds me of my college basketball coach. He was this small dude, and he had small man syndrome, just going to be honest. And, uh, and, and I was one of the small guys on the team, so he's, he was really small around us. And he would get so mad at us. And, uh, you know, if you ever played on a, on a team, you know what happens when the coach leaves the locker room. Everybody does their impersonation of the coach. And so we all had our impersonation of, of our coach. Uh, his first name was Charlie. And, uh, and so we, you know, we do our impersonation, but he'd always, he'd always get up in your face. He'd be like, be a man. I can't do it. My, my voice is gone. Be like, be a man. He'd be a real high pitch, high pitch voice. Be a man, Wadlow. Be a man. He's like, he's like pushing my legs right here. Be a man, Wadlow. He'd go over here to, to a guy named Hassan who was taller than me, six, nine. Be a man, Hassan. Be a man, Tristan. Be a man, Achilles. He'd go just down the line. We'd be at a timeout in, in, a, in a game and like, you know, everybody loved uh, love Charlie. Everybody loved our coach because he's, he's a great guy personally, but, but then like in the game, he went crazy and lost his mind. He'd, he'd go, I'm so mad right now, I can't even see straight. Be a man. And people like in the top of the arena would be like, oh my gosh, is he okay? What's, why, why is his voice so high pitched? But he'd be yelling at us, be a man. And, and my mind is weird, but when I read this and Paul says, act like a man, I just picture Charlie standing. I didn't call him Charlie. I was like, yes, sir, coach, I will be a man from now on, sir. I'm, I'm sorry, whatever, whatever I need to do better next time. He was, he was small, but he was intimidating. But I, 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 picture, I picture my coach looking at me, yelling at me, saying, act like a man. Be like a man. And the reality is, you know, I probably shouldn't make jest at a point like this because this is a huge issue in the church, fellas. Speaking to the guys in the room. Why is it that we have a total disregard for the challenges that God, God's word gives us? I mean, you, you, this, is a, this is a huge problem. 
I mean, props to the women in the room. Now, there's other things to say, you know, it's not just an issue with guys, but, but props to the women in the room because there are a lot of women who are stepping up and a lot of men who should be stepping up that are not. And there's a lot of women that should be stepping up that aren't. But I mean, just, you just look and, and there's a different, like, fellas, are we going to listen to the charge of act like a man, be a man, engage in God's mission? The problem, I think, is, and I, I say this because I'm, I'm right here with you in this struggle, but there's so many things that culture has, has laid in our lap that create this false sense of us being on mission and accomplishing great things when in all reality it's just a video game or it's just a sport or it's just uh, chasing after a girl or whatever. And God has called us to a much greater mission, a much greater adventure. And I will tell you, though I still am in this struggle with you, in the ways that I have given my life to following the Lord, the, the mission is way more exciting. And, and being involved in that is, is of way much more thrill, adventure, takes so much more courage, it involves so much more risk. It's way better than anything culture offers. And so Paul says, act like a man, engage in this mission, engage in this battle. And I, I just throw that out to you, fellas, are, are we going to do that? And then he says, be strong. There's a ton of irony in this word. What do you think of when you think of be strong? Some of you guys are like, <laughs> uh, what do you, you know, I, I'll tell you what I think of when I think of being strong. I think of, I think of going to like LA Fitness or working out somewhere and you got these dudes walking in that are totally on steroids. I got that orange colored skin because they're on steroids and they're so big like uh, that their thighs like, you know, rub together right here because they just, they, they can't walk normally. The, anyways, they walk like this and they're just kind of weird looking. Uh, I, I, I was working out and when I was in my last church in Lubbock, I was working out the, the rec center at Texas Tech and, uh, you know, it's kind of a thing you know, for the big guys, when they got like four or five plates on the bench press or like six or seven plates on squat, I work out. I, I warm up with six. But anyways, um, I'm kidding. I don't. I use like 10 pounds. But they, they, they throw it on there. And like if they're, if they're maxing out, what do they do is they're maxing out. They're like, Rah! you know, like go, go Hulk mode. So I'm in the, I'm in the rec center. And, and there's like probably 100 people in here working out. And uh, <clears throat> all of a sudden you hear this guy just like, and, and you turn and you look, and no joke, it's one of my students, sadly. He's in there in these shorts that were borderline Speedo with his shirt tucked in. And he's got 25 pounds on each side of the squat rack. And he does one set, and he goes, sets it down, and he just walks out of the weight room like this. I was like, wow, that really just, that really just happened. You know, when we think of be strong, I think we have all these different perceptions of being like this manly man, a dude who doesn't back down from nobody. But there's so much irony in this word, be strong. This word means to be strong by being weak and letting God be strong in you. And, and don't, don't, please, do not misinterpret this to mean we be passive. Because that's the complete opposite of what he's saying. What he's saying, though, is let God flex his muscles for you. The reality is if, if God flexes his muscles for you, you will be way more intimidating. If God flexes his muscles for you, you will be way more powerful. And if God flexes his muscles for you, you will have a much greater impact. Be strong by being weak. And then the last thing he says is do everything in love. He says let all that you do be done in love. Do everything in love. That word do comes from the Greek word meaning, meaning to be born. So this isn't something that you do here with your hands. This is something that you are in here. 
in your heart. That's why verse 22, he goes on to say, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And then he says, our Lord, come. And the reality is, if you don't have love, then your, your heart hasn't been changed. You haven't been born again. But take it a step further. The other, the other maybe more accurate picture of this, because the word do is the same word used to, to, to mean to be born. A more accurate picture is probably of a pregnant woman. And, and love is the baby growing in her belly. What happens to a pregnant lady when the baby's growing in her belly? What happens to her belly? You ever heard of the term booty do? You know what booty do is? Booty do is, uh, that's, that's when your belly sticks out further than your booty do. And so <laughs> a pregnant lady, as the baby grows, she begins to have this booty do. Um, so, so love should be growing inside of you. And if, if love, let me ask you this question. If love was literally growing in your belly, would you have a booty do? <laughs> or would you just have a little baby pooch? Or would you show it all? If love was growing inside of you, what would it be? He says, do everything in love. And that's how he closes this letter. He goes on to greet some people in the church. And I just want to say as I close, like, I mean, you look at all of his letters, all of Paul's letters. You know, he says, he says things like, you know, greet so-and-so because they've, they've aided me in the work. And greet this person and encourage this person. Continue to pray for this person. You know, as we close this letter, I want you to know that I'm praying for you. Your, your life group leaders here are praying for you. The leadership of this church is praying for you. And I also want you to know that I'm so thankful for you. It is so encouraging to me to see the way that God is working in and through so many of you. And there's some of you, I've, I honestly, I don't know you. I have no idea who you are. Some of you, this is probably your first night. And, and I'm so glad that you came because you probably came because somebody invited you. And, and that's the beginning of getting connected into this community, connected into this family. And let me tell you something. There's so much to be said and so much uh, that's special about being a part of community as a believer that is where we are encouraged. That is how we grow. That is where our faith, it's, it's like putting your faith in a, in a crock pot slash microwave where it is able to finally grow. And, and God begins to use you as, you as you're walking in community with other believers. And I just want you to know I'm so thankful for you. And those who stuck out this entire study through 1 Corinthians, was this not awesome? Is this, not, is this letter not an incredible letter, a challenging letter? So tonight... As I pray, I want you to know, so next week, I don't know if you remember in 1 Corinthians where there's like a shift, and, and Paul goes from saying the things that he needed to say and get off his chest to the church to beginning to answer the questions that were in the church. And so as we move into next week, we start our new series called Ask Anything, and that's exactly what we're going to do. Um, we're going to begin answering the questions that y'all have been asking since last semester. We have a ton of questions, and uh, we won't be able to answer them all, but we're going to answer a lot of them. And so... Um, I'm excited about the coming weeks. I think we have five, four, four weeks, five weeks. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, we'll finish when we're done. So, uh, But that's where we're headed. And I hope you'll come back next week. Um, these are questions you ask. So it's going to be great. Um, let me pray for us. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.